we have a customer who helped, it was a restaurant who helped to his guests to do a proposal, printing, will you marry me? And then with a certain names on it, that and chocolate. On the other hand, important target group is actually education and research institutes all over the world. They're actually researching how this technology could be used in the future to prevent food waste or to use food waste to make new products. It's being examined, for example, for elderly people with swallowing problems to create new food products. And it's examined for uh, personalized nutrition. So how can we really create the food of the future? Welcome to the Tangible Computing Podcast. My name is Andrew Rutgers, co-host. And I'm Gareth Thomas. The Tangible Computing Podcast is about where computing meets the real world. From the fast and complex, like controlling an engine to imaging a patient or scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This episode of Tangible Computing is brought to you by ChargeSim. ChargeSim is helping accelerate the transition to electric vehicles by helping electric vehicle fleets find the right charging infrastructure for their needs, trading off parking arrangements, smart charging, and utility capacity to help find the most cost-effective solution. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Welcome to the Tangible Computing Podcast. I'm Andrew Rutgers, and my co-host, Gareth Thomas. And today, we're interviewing Nina Hoff, CEO and co-founder of Byflow. Byflow makes 3D printers for food. So, Nina, to start off, tell us a fun fact about yourself. Yes, thank you. One fun fact about me is actually that I really enjoy watching uh, old series and old movies. Uh, you know about the past. Since we're living in this digital times every day, uh, we're working on new technology, although it's for the food industry. I'm surrounded by engineers and uh, the whole story every day goes about technology. So I really enjoy to sometimes really go back in time and think about how it was 100, maybe 200 years ago. And I can really lose myself into those stories, thinking about the times where there weren't telephones yet or electricity. I spent quite some time on enjoying that, those you know, little moments for myself in the evening or in the weekends, just to relax and uh, take my mind somewhere else. What would you say is one of your favorites? Currently, I'm really into Downton Abbey. Maybe you know it. Uh, who's not, probably, at this point? It's a series uh, about this family uh, in England. I really enjoy it. It's it's They get their first phone in a certain episode, for example. They don't know how to use it. You know, it's also a little bit funny and a little bit cute as well. So uh, I really enjoy watching it. So do you see uh, similarities of people who get their first 3D printer, food 3D printer? And are you drawing analogies from, from the TV series itself? Actually, a good question. Maybe yes. We get a lot, uh, lot of questions when we showcase the 3D food printer, like, what is this and how does it work? And never seen it before. Uh, this sounds weird. I don't know how to use it, maybe. Indeed, it's actually when I think about it, when, you, when you're asking it, it is a reaction that we get a lot. People don't really believe in it. Sometimes they believe it's it's fake. It's not even it's not even a real technology. 
So indeed, it, we, we get that question a lot. And even after six years, and you know, 3D footprinting is already out there for more than six years, we still get that question today. So in that sense, maybe things go a bit slower around us than sometimes that we think ourselves. Can you tell me a little bit about what the machine looks like? I have visualization of a 3D printer, like an Ultimaker or something like that. But does your machine look like that, except I get chocolate out? What's in front of me when I see the machine? Yes, well, we're a little bit smaller than, let's say, an Ultimaker machine. So we really have a tabletop machine. Actually, the product that we have currently on the market is inside of a suitcase. A few years back, when my brother developed his first prototype, it was in this you know, gray silver suitcase that James Bond carries around. Over the years, we really focused also on the design of the suitcase, which is now slick and white and has round corners, for example, and a beautiful leather brown handle. When you open the suitcase, uh, a foldable printer comes out. So you flip up the frame, you attach a print head to it. And inside this print head is actually where the magic happens when it comes to food printing. You put a cartridge inside, which is actually a syringe. Uh, that we use from the medical industry, for example. And in that syringe, we put food, for example, uh, a potato puree or a liquid chocolate or any other soft ingredients. And then what the 3D printer does, it is indeed based on FDM technology. It pushes out the material while making the uh, yeah, XYZ movement, let's say, and then building up layer by layer the 3D object, in this case, in food. What's the major use for 3D printed food? At the moment, and especially in the last uh, few years, uh, we really focused on uh, high-end borica, so hotel, restaurants, bakeries, uh, chocolate chase, where they can create shapes that are not possible to do by hand or by mold in any type of soft ingredient food. So, of course, there are certain limitations to the types of food that you can print. Think about, for example, uh, tomatoes, which have a lot of water inside that is impossible to print because yeah, the material will just not hold itself. But when you look at the possibilities indeed for chocolate or avocado puree, for example, they're endless. So this was really a new experience for those restaurants, let's say uh, for their guests. Total new shapes, but also personalized st stuff on the spot. We have a customer who helped, uh, it was a restaurant who helped to, his guests to do a proposal, printing, will you marry me? and then with a certain names on it, and that then in chocolate. On the other hand, important target group is actually education and research institutes all over the world. They're actually researching how this technology could be used in the future to prevent food waste or to use food waste to make new products. It's being examined, for example, for elderly people with swallowing problems to create new food products, and it's examined for uh, personalized nutrition. So how can we really create the food of the future? So there are a couple of very interesting points there that you brought up, but maybe to kind of take a step back, you said these cartridges, right? So is this something that somebody would buy a food cartridge from your, you, or is it more like a chef would make his or her own food cartridge? And if it is the latter, I'm assuming it's not as simple as taking a bar of chocolate, melting it and putting it in the syringe and then pushing a button and off we go. Or is it really like that? Well, to answer your first question, we don't sell the food. So indeed, uh, our customers make the food th themselves. We do sell uh, online software, for example, where they can create their 3D object, because but we can talk about that later. That's, of course, also a big hurdle, especially when you're working for chefs that have no technical backgrounds. And to answer your second question, if it is as easy to just melt chocolate and put it in a syringe, 
Well, actually, yes. The printer is really designed to a target group that is, has no technical knowledge, apart from starting or stopping a machine, for example. So we really designed our focus printer that indeed you melt a chocolate, you put it into the syringe, the syringe inside of the printer, you click on your preferred design, you click on print and the printer will do the rest. So it sounds very interesting and you put a lot of thought into the designing and you called out that uh, there are different areas, like it could be not only chocolate, but I see on your website, you have a nice example of chocolate. Is that because chocolate is appealing to everybody and everyone gets it quickly? Or is there a more of a technical reason why you call out 3D printing for chocolate? Well, first of all, who doesn't love chocolate? I think everybody loves chocolate. It's one of the fastest growing markets. When you look at ingredients, especially during COVID times, people want to indulge themselves. They really want to have this special moment. But at the same time, it's one of the hardest materials to print with. Chocolate, many people will probably not know this, has a lot of difficult characteristics like crystallization, fat percentages, where the chocolate extra, uh, actually comes from. So the cocoa beans, I mean with that, is it from, uh, from Africa or South America, for example. And all those types of chocolate have different. So that made it very complicated. And for us, it was a challenge because we wanted to build a 3D food printer of the future, which would be capable of printing any ingredients without always, first of all, having to make a puree, because that's an extra step. When you want to print potato puree, you first have to boil the potatoes, then you have to make a puree out of it, then you have to put it inside of the printer. You know, a lot of work is already done before you can actually start printing. And with the new system and new technology that we wanted to develop, we wanted to take that step out and we wanted to uh, automate that step. And we found out that uh, with chocolate, if we could nail that, that we would open up the market for way more ingredients for printing, for example, with powders or uh, mixing with powders. So chocolate was for us really the holy grail. And we said, if we are able to mill that and we can print it in a way that it comes out perfectly tempered, as they call it in chocolate world, then we can print almost any other ingredients. So that was our challenge for the last few years, and we nailed it. What, it's, what it means, if I can go into the technical details for chocolate printing, it means that uh, tempering of the chocolate means following a certain temperature curve. Really skilled chocolate or bakeries take months of training to, yeah, to learn how to do that manually. Chocolate tempering machines are quite expensive machines because they have to follow that specific curve. It goes up to 30 degrees to melt the blocks of chocolate. Then it has to cool down again to a certain temperature. I cannot tell out all the details. It's quite specific. And then it has to heat up again. And it really goes with an accuracy of zero point something degree. So in that small print head that we have, the print head is not larger than 20 centimeters. We had to build in all those different temperature zones where the chocolate really could go through those three zones of heating up, cooling down again, and heating up again. And that all while actually printing. So that was actually our, our biggest challenge for the last few years. And now we can say that we, we nailed that and, and we got actually a patent for, uh, uh, for this technology specifically for the whole process of this, uh, of this chocolate manufacturing. 
So what do you think are some of the most interesting things you've printed? We were the first in the world to be able to print meat, actual meat. We also experimented right then with uh, vegan meat, for example. So protein-based meat, hemp-based meat. Those are very challenging products because, for example, with meat, you need a lot of pressure. There's uh, a lot of waste meat also inside. With plant-based meat, there's a lot of challenging uh, stuff because you want to recreate texture, for example, like, uh, like a beefsteak. Well, there's now companies that, that spend a lot of time and money on perfection, perfectioning that process. But I would say that after chocolate, maybe cookie dough was quite interesting to print. Pasta dough was quite interesting. To, well, any, actually. Apart from the purees, uh, all the other ingredients are, are quite tricky. But the flip side of that is molds are quite well established for, for chocolate and other things. I mean, all chocolatiers are all quite used to using it. I mean, it seems like you're only valuable if you are doing something that's custom shaped and it doesn't justify a mold. Or are there shapes that you can do that you can't easily do with a mold? Yes, uh, that indeed is, is one of the most important reasons. So we can print almost any ch shape with chocolate because chocolate has this interesting uh, characteristics again that that it hardens when when it gets into a cooled environment and therefore you can make really steep angles that are not possible to do by any mold or you can make very delicate chocolates which you cannot take out of a mold you know when you use a mold for example to make a bonbon you really have to slap it hard to take out the chocolate well if you would do that with a delicate uh, structure or delicate texture it will immediately break so that is so if there's a delicate pattern or sort of angel hair on the top of the chocolate, that's something that you could print, which a mold wouldn't let you do. Exactly. And to give you maybe an, an, a good example is that we can print a world globe. So just around, which you can do with a mold. But on that world globe, we can print those continents like Europe or Africa, which you cannot do with a mold because you will never get that detailed out. And what we can do, so imagine that inside of that world globe, so inside of that uh, uh, globe, you can have different zones, so different small chambers, which you can then fill with maybe some nuts or some cream, for example. So if you would do this with a mold, you would always have a hollow shell, which is completely hollow. And now we can pr print within that shell, we can print any pattern which you would like giving a whole new experience to a customer when you take a bite of it. And I think second of all, what is really important to know is that molds don't uh, go for so many years. Molds don't last that long. Yes. But, okay, but so then presumably your printer doesn't last that long either. I mean, it's, it's presumably got a lifespan. How long are you typically seeing your products last? Well, at the moment, the first product that we launched in 2016 is still being used by customers. So that's five years. And especially with new qualities of products and stuff like that, we believe that we, can, we could go up to five years for a product. And if you have a chocolate, chocolate company, for example, molds also cost a lot of money, especially when you want to make specialty molds. And of course, you can 3D print molds. Actually, seven years ago in, in the company of my father, this was one of the first things that we thought of to print silicone molds with the same system, actually, that we, that we now have. But it's a very delicate process. And when you print, for example, with silicone molds in uh, FDM technology, you will always see the lines and then chocolate gets stuck inside of the mold and stuff like that. So it is 
what we see a very important technology. And if we're able to scale up the production time, so to make it faster, I really believe that this is going to be a future tool for companies uh, for their specialty assortments to make new shapes, new textures, personalized products, etc. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in what you were saying with this idea of breaking into a new area. So I can clearly see this is groundbreaking, but you called out that you had one cartridge. And if I'm drawing analogies with the 3D printing world, with plastics, sometimes you have like multiple materials coming in at the same time. And then at a technical level, you could switch between two, three, four. So if you're thinking of plastic, you'd have different colors. Does your printer also cater for that, that you could have multiple cartridges of different materials in the same machine? Or is that a future iteration of your company? Well, indeed, that will be a future iteration of our company because we see exactly the same, that it would become very important, for example, in this personalized nutrition space that you use a chocolate as a base material, but that you want to put in extra vitamins or other nutrients like protein, for example. This can be powders or small liquids. And then indeed you want to have different cartridges. But what is very important to know is that with food, every other food takes different settings inside of the print head. So chocolate has a specific uh, way of being pushed out of the system. It goes under a certain pressure. If you would do that with any other ingredients, so think about the vegetables again, or the meat or the alternative meat, it asks for different settings from the software. It asks for different settings of the pressure, for example. So there's a lot of stuff also on the background. So let's say in the software that we need to solve in order to have that cartridge system in, inside of the, our printer. But it's definitely the, the next step that we believe in. So can you tell me a bit about your technology stack? What programming languages are you using? Yes. So currently we use for the printer itself a C++. We used to always, and, and when we started our company, we used to use open source software, for example, and, and knowledge that we could find on the internet. But two years ago, when we started to develop our new product, we decided, especially since it was so complicated, our product, to write our own software. Um, online, we also have our design software, and that's mainly written in, in, in Python. What, what are some of the challenges of building that design software? Turning the shape into a tool path, so that to control how the how the print head moves to print out the object, and doing that's quite complicated. What are what are some of the things you've learned from that, or some of the some of the considerations, especially for food? Good question. So first of all, we did a lot of research on current slicing software. Of course, the open source software that is available, but also we've done a lot of research in 3D food printing ourselves. So we've done a lot of 3D food prints actually ourselves in the last couple of years, and we've learned a lot of that. So we now actually wrote our own uh, slicing software uh, system, let's say. But I do have to, to mention that this is meant for two and a half D designs. So th those are quite easy. So our software, for example, takes an image, just a .gpg uh, file, for example, and then it translates it automatically into a two and a half D shape. And with the slicing software, you can say how many layers you want, and that's, that's it. So it's not very complicated shapes yet when it comes to our own design software. Then we have to translate it into a G-code and that G-code gets uploaded on the printer. 
Do you do kind of like design rule checks? I guess with two and a half D, it's fairly limited. The minimum size of points or curves or in 3D cases, then you run into like the overhang can be quite important that you can't get certain angles with 3D printing. Yes. So the first thing, uh, definitely. So our software has an automatic repair function indeed. So we've worked on, for example, when, when the image gets recognized and you select which nozzle size you want to use. So we have nozzles from 0.8 millimeters up to 1.6 millimeters. It will recognize if it can make certain corners, if it has to make it a little bit more rounder, for example, a little bit more bigger the lines or thicker the lines. That the software does all automatically. And actually that was developed by one of our interns, which we're very proud of, together with my, with my brother. And the next step for us would be what you were mentioning about recognizing if angles would be possible to print and stuff like that. And of course, we first would like to do that for chocolate, because again, it's also very limited to the material or very yeah, dedicated to what ingredients you're going to print. So we're already investigating indeed the potential of really going into 3D so that the customer really can make his own complicated 3D shapes. And the software will mention upfront indeed if this is going to be a printable object, yes or no. So I'm gathering the way you're, you're explaining, it sounds very technical. And I'm assuming that you're, most of your customers, chefs, their passion, their heart is well, not so much about how a mechanical machine and having a machine in their workstation is a bit of maybe a violation of what they're used to. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more of how you convince chefs or restaurant owners to embrace this technology? And how do you kind of show that actually it's super easy to use and that they don't need to worry about all of these technical details? How do you overcome these things? Is there a tricks that you've learned over the years to kind of convince them? Or is it just based on who are the most visionary chefs out there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I think the, the biggest challenge for us was to make sure that when you see the product, you immediately think, uh, this looks easy to use. So again, not too many cables, not too many buttons, stuff like that. That is, uh, I think, really important for when we showcase it around. And I think I can say that if you compare us to other 3D food printers or any other 3D printer on the market, that you can immediately see that this is an easy to use product. And there's also the feedback that we get back from our customers. And at the same time, it's really important, of course, to get ambassadors. So other important chefs or chocolate chase that can tell that story. And I think to answer your first question, where when you started with, how do you convince a chef to start using such a machine? I think it's really important to emphasize that a 3D food printer is just a tool. It's a tool to make something, you know, that you cannot do by hand. While the printer is doing its work, you can focus on other stuff. And actually what you take out is the production component of that chef. So where he normally would take the mold, pure the puree in or the chocolate in, then have to uh, put the mold into the fridge and flip it around, and take the chocolates off one by one. Now this machine handles all of that for you. So it also gives you back a little bit of time, which you can spend again on what I believe and also the chef's beliefs is their most valuable time. And that is actually thinking about new products, new menus, new creativity, new designs. So what we really showcase is that with this technology, it enables also a chef to fully focus on unlimited potential and design, texture, and therefore flavor. Then having this tool that creates that automatically for you, so you don't have to have any other technical skills. 
than just taking out that production and start selling it. So we actually give them yeah, their time back to be fully creative. So maybe just to be, be clear, I understand your, your business model, Nina, is you sell the 3D printer machine itself, right? It's not that you have the 3D printing machines at your facilities and then people go onto a website and they upload it and then they say, okay, dear Byflow, please will you make me a cake with this design on top of it? It's that the other way around, right? So you only sell the machines, yes. you make sure that people are familiar with it, but then does that mean that then a chef needs to spend time designing things or is it more about just taking a picture and uploading it and then the software does it automatically? It really depends on what the chef has in his preference. So we also, of course, have like a Thingiverse platform where there's like hundreds of, of 3D models already available that they can just simply scroll through, see the printing time, the volume, etc., and just download it and uh, uploaded on their printer. So this is the easy part. Second thing, yes, if they want to create something completely new, they would need to spend some time behind the computer. But as I was mentioning in our online software program where we, where we allow chefs to design their own designs, that takes less than five steps. Uploading an image, software recognition will go itself, repair function will go itself, selecting how many layers you want and then go. And yeah, in the future, I think when you're a chef, already that is going on every month and certain chefs even every week have a different menu. That means that their creativity process is always going on. And now they sketch it on a piece of paper. You know, they, they envision a, a certain dish, for example, they sketch it out on a piece of paper. They write down uh, what food and what components they want to use. The next step is that they sketch it down, not only on paper, but they sketch it immediately inside of the software, where then this automatically translates it again into a 3D model and they can start printing it. And so you talked about the, the, the 3D printer taking on the productivity element of it and leaving the creativity part to the, the chefs. But I mean, what that also means is scalability, that I could have many of these printers working at many different restaurants, working from the ideas of one chef. How far do you think 3D printing will go in terms of taking over a lot of that food production? And even to the extreme, will I end up with a, a 3D printer in my home kitchen that I just say, look, I, I want to have you know this type of food at home for dinner, and then I'm going to get home and it's all ready for me? Redesigned yeah. by chef number XYZ, my favorite chef exactly. that designed it for his you know, restaurant. I, <laughs> right. I, I could just buy a license from, you know, famous chef so-and-so and have it printed on my, my home printer and come home and it's all there like a Star Trek replicator. Yes, that, that would be really cool. To answer, your, to answer your first question, well, like any with any 3D printing going on right now, what you see a lot is, for example, 3D print farms. So those plastic farms or even metal printing where you see loads of printers standing next to each other, all printing the same or maybe different objects. I think that will be the first step also for 3D food printing when you really want to scale up production. Because when you make one big machine and that machine breaks or one nozzle clocks or whatever, that, that takes too much time and therefore too much money. So what you already we have already a few customers that scale up their production by adding more printers. 
I yeah. mean, one, one of the challenges you have with that is that food is highly perishable. So if I produce a lot of, uh, a lot of things well in advance, like my, my dinner, I can't produce it easily uh, a day in advance or, or a microwave it. So that gives a very different food texture to the, the freshly cooked. Uh, so the, the, the time limits and the perishability seem to be a much more difficult challenge there. Yes, but I think what is really important to keep in mind is that in the coming years, there will be so many people on this planet, over 9 billion, that we simply do not have enough food on this planet or food production to be able to feed all those people. So first of all, I believe that slow what you're, what you're already seeing is that uh, local production becomes more and more important, not only for cars, but also for food. Second, what you see is that a lot of food, for example, is, going, is being traveled all over the world. So when you go to the supermarket here in the Netherlands, I can take beans from Africa. I get my raspberries from Morocco. I get my asparagus from uh, Peru. What a lot of that food is being wasted in that whole supply chain. Uh, simply because we have to throw it away because when it ends uh, up here in the Netherlands, it's not fresh anymore. What if we could freeze dry all those products? And with freeze drying, we mean that you, you take, for example, that, that raspberry into a machine, you bring it down to a, a very cold temp temperature, very fast, but you get a powdered food. So instead of that raspberry with texture and stuff like that, you get just a powder, which still contains all the nutrients. Imagine shipping that all over the world. You can fill a container with way more powder than you can do with raspberries, you can keep that powder for a longer time than you could do with those fresh products. And those but, but powders I mean, can be we, we easily have those printed today, again. Right, but we, we have those today and we don't eat them or we do eat them, but they're a completely different experience from a fresh raspberry, a fresh strawberry or whatever it is. Of course. And of course. so, you know, how do we, you, you think 3D printing will get to the level that we'll be able to actually reconstitute the, the, the experience of a fresh raspberry out of powders? Yes. Yeah, so, what you, if I, if I could take it to the other industry, which is, which is quite big actually right now, and and yesterday there was a big launch, uh, a company that indeed makes those uh, plant-based steaks, for example. Those are made of powder with a bit, little bit of cocoa, coconut fat, for example, and a little bit of beet juice uh, to uh, represent the bloodiness of the steak. So those products are already being printed in, in quite uh, a lot of amounts. So one printer, if I understood correctly, can, up, can do up to three kilograms almost an hour. That's a lot of production. And that plant-based steak will be able to be produced in any country. You just simply need that recipe of those powders and that, that, that beet juice, for example. And you can recreate that steak which is way better if you're already looking for the meat industry and the meat alternative, way better for the environment, probably also better for, for your health, your, your own body, because you could mix it with certain nutrients that you lack, for example. So I will not say that 3D food printing will take over all of your food so that in the future you will have breakfast, lunch and dinner 3D printed. I think it will be components, certain components of your dish, like the uh, printed steak, or like, for example, personalized chocolates with extra nutrients in there as a snack, I think that will be the first steps to overcome. And that's already quite challenging. And to answer your second question, if I believe that in every home there will be a 3D food printer, well, that answer is no, simply for the reason that I just mentioned. Because I don't believe that my whole dish in the future will be 3D printed, like you saw on Star Trek. 
it will always be components. And, and a big trend going on right now is that more and more people order their food online with thuis bezorgd, you know, takeaway services, or they go indeed to a restaurant and then uh, experience is very important, or they eat on the go, on the train station, on the metro station, stuff like that. So you see that even, for example, in New York, there's houses being built that don't even have a kitchen anymore, simply because people are never home to eat. So I think that 3D food printers will take up a certain space, maybe at that train station to create as part of your dish or to create that snack that you need to feed your body at that moment. And I don't believe that there will be 3D food printers in your house. But not at a mass level, right? So I'm sure uh, there will be ways, a small percentage of the world, which is curious and they like tinkering around, you know, that they they kind of would like that. But I'm assuming that there's another element of uh, cost. So how much are we talking? I don't know if you can share this. What is the ballpark price of your 3D printing machine? Are we talking like 100,000 euros, a million euros? Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we in the thousand euros? What, what kind of ballpark figure are we talking about? So our current machine on the market, which can make really small-scale production, is 4,000 euros. And our new printer is aimed at 8.5, maybe 10,000 euros max, depending also on the price increase of of materials that are currently going on. So it's not that much of money if you compare it to to an expensive metal, metal printer, for example. So price, yes, of course, is very important. But if you look at the, at the kitchen, uh, a professional kitchen in a restaurant, on average, it's almost 100,000 100, euros. So that is an oven, uh, of course, a lot of space to put your pots and pans on, stuff like that. So it is already quite a big investment for those restaurants to even open up a restaurant with a, with a good professional kitchen. So tools and technology are quite expensive, but you again have to think about your return on investments. How can you earn back such a machine? Well, with our return of investment calculations, with, for example, that chocolate example that you can really create new products, this could be done within a year, maybe maximum two. So that goes quite fast. Do you see this as a a means of like food chains, right? So I can imagine like for a a high-end restaurant where there's a specific brand and it's a one restaurant and that's maybe got a Michelin star associated with and you go for the experience and you're very happy. And the intent of a restaurant like that is not to have 5,000 of them around the world. Do you see that, for example, companies like fast food, maybe like a McDonald's or, or something like this would also embrace this kind of technology that they have one center of creating designs and then every week it get pushed out at a tremendous pace to every single corner on the planet by doing 3D printing? Ooh, I think that is a very trick question. That could be because if you, for example, already look at a fast food brand that now has vegetarian products, what a lot of people don't know is actually a vegetarian hamburger, for example, is already 3D printed. The only difference is that it's, it's, it's again, 2.5D and it's smashed flat afterwards to be able to, to sell. So maybe that those fast food brands would have local production, like they would have one production facility in the Netherlands to make all the burgers for the Netherlands 3D printed. That could be. But if I really look at fast food change, they they get a lot of ready-to-go products which they just heat up or simply fry with their machines. And then it, it's it's such a short amount of time that I think 3D printing in the coming years will be too slow for that. 
One of the things I'm imagining with this is if I if I have chocolate and I've heated it up and I put it in this syringe and I put it through some tubes that I'm going to have to clean this after. Is is that difficult? Is that a challenge? Does it yes, take a long course. time? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So in our in our current system that we have already on the market where we use those syringes indeed. It's easy because you can put the syringe inside of the dishwasher. Unless the chocolate already hardens inside of the syringe, then you can throw out the syringe because you will never get it out. In our new system that we got patented as well, it's it's actually a screw system. So it's it's a small screw where the chocolate flows around, and this can easily taken uh, can easily be taken out. And you do it at a time that the chocolate is still a bit molten, and then you just clean it with a wipe and maybe some water, and you put it back in. So that goes very easy, but you cannot put it in a dishwasher yet, unfortunately. So this sounds like a super interesting company that you've created, Nina, but I'm a little curious of how did you actually get started? So what's your superhero origin story or how did you get started? Well, again, we're a family business and my father was actually one of the first in the Netherlands to introduce 3D printing, but that was uh, plastics. My brother was one of the first to build the Ultimaker printer, you know, the one back in the days from wood. That was very uh, interesting times. And I remember that uh, my father and brother in the weekends would always spend time in fab labs, for example, fabrication laboratories in the Netherlands, working on this 3D printing technology. And it was always very weird to me until the moment that my brother made me a 3D printed bracelet. I really remember that at that time. It was super pink. And I loved it. It was an amazing bracelet. It was you could. It was like like a, a bracelet that you could take apart a little bit, and then it would bend back. And, and and I really loved it. So that was when I knew that 3D printing would really open up a lot of markets. And especially because I love jewelry, I thought, well, this this is going to be very interesting that you can make your own jewelry and and it just comes out in any color that you like. And at a certain point, my brother, I think he was 19 or maybe yeah, 19, 20. Uh, was fed up with it and he decided to to build his own 3D print, which was the printer in the James Bond suitcase, which he thought was really cool. And almost 90% of that printer was 3D printed. So only, let's say, the motors and electronics came from, from suppliers. My brother would want me to show his printer. And at a, at a certain day, I told my brother, well, if you ever decide to start a company within 3D printing, I will join. And then, yeah, a few years later, my brother further evolved with his product. He studied industrial design. The product started to look really cute, you know, white with the round corners. And my father was traveling all over Europe at different fairs where he had to showcase projects from his company. And he always took my brother with him with a 3D printer. And yeah, in every show, they would do something special. And I remember the time that we were in Rome because I traveled with them just for fun uh, to have, you know, a city trip. And in Rome, they were printing chocolate paste, so Nutella. And I remember that there were standing so many people and children, I believe hundreds of them, around that, that small printer that was really tabletop size. And I really got excited. And then my father, yeah, he got orders for that printer of, of my brother. Like many people wanted to print chocolate paste, apparently. And he was like, yeah, but we're not commercial yet. So my brother said, okay, let's start a company. Let's just try and see where we go. And of course, because I promised him years before that, that I would join him. I joined, that was in 2015. So uh, we're now six years. Actually, Friday, we're celebrating our sixth anniversary as a family business. With some 3D printed chocolates, no doubt. 
Of course, of course. <laughs> and many more, and many more. Yes. You called out that you've had multiple generations and prototypes. Can you maybe share some of the war stories throughout these years of prototypes and some of the major changes and lessons learned throughout these uh, prototypes? Yes. So when we when we started with our printer that we have already on the market, my brother was 20. So and he wanted to do it all by himself. So we had absolutely no knowledge on how to make a product that could also be manufactured not in 10 but also in hundreds of pieces and i remember that uh, my dad really sitting with the hands in his hair i, I think it's a dutch saying when and and with all the, the tickets you know of all the prices all the materials that you that you had to order and back then there was no materialized or 3d hubs yet so you really had to source all different suppliers yourself getting those prototypes in was crazy expensive and i really remembered that my brother didn't understand yet back then how prototyping for manufacturing actually worked so anytime he would have an idea, maybe to put a hole uh, in the framework uh, of metal uh, on the left inside of the right, he would order it and it would come in. And that took a lot of time to learn that you can do a lot of things on the computer. So in SolidWorks, for example, you can design and then you can upload it now, for example, at, at companies like 24-7 Taylor Steel. And you immediately see what you could change to make it more cheaper, you know. So all that knowledge that you now get from those companies in their software, we had to learn ourselves. And that was, I, I think, yeah, very interesting process, uh, not only, of course, for the money, but also things about material choice. So certain different uh, metal materials, for example. Then what we totally forgot is when we decided to really focus on the food market is food safety. How does that work? What certificates come with that? Prototyping for food safety. How does that work? Can you feed someone? Yeah. What comes out of your printer when you have a prototype? All that also legal stuff that comes with it. The choice of oil and stuff becomes much more complicated than if, exactly. if the oil drips in. You, it, it's got to be safe. Exactly. Yes. And then, you know, then for, for the food industry, there's a lot of solutions, but those are large systems and we have a tabletop machine. So there would be solutions, for example, with those oily, oily things, but then uh, they wouldn't be in our sizes because we have such a small system. So it, it, it was a lot of learning by doing, I think, expensive process and again, cost a lot of time, but also because we weren't experienced and we were just doing this as a hobby that became a company. So we also had to spend time on hiring engineers, for example, with a little bit of more experience, collaborating with other companies, the technical universities and stuff like that, to really learn as fast as possible to make sure that we could make that product and send it out to the world. What are some of the things you wanna learn next? Well, I really, what we're really working on now is indeed, again, the, the, the food of the future. And what I really believe in is that personalized nutrition, but there's a lot of science behind that. And we're not scientists, we're engineers. So we have to collaborate with all those scientists to be able to learn how we can create those new food products with our 3D food printer. I think that is going to be the biggest challenge and my biggest learning for the coming years to learn more about food, more about how food reacts to the 3D printing technology itself, because that's also something that we see. 
a carrot from Russia is not the same carrot from the Netherlands. They have different characteristics again, and, and that works different in our 3D printer. So I would really want our team to spend more time to, to learn from scientists about food and, and how we can use food for personalized production. What is the thing that puts the biggest smile on your face when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> well, currently it's, it's really to, to be able to work on this new product with my, with my team and that it's finally there. I think that, that in the last couple of weeks was very important to me to hold on to. It's been uh, interesting times, of course. But with, with our small but dedicated team of engineers and 3D food printing experts, we've now created such a beautiful new product that I really cannot wait uh, for the rest of the world to see. And, I, and that, that makes me smile to think about how can we, how can we reach that next step and uh, that next goal. So thanks for all the uh, interesting stories about uh, learning how to build prototypes and print food. How can people reach out to you if uh, they want to find out more or other ways they can work with you? Well, they can go to the website. It's www.3dbyflow.com. Otherwise, if they want to reach out to me personally, I'm very open to that as well because I'm also advocating for more women in technology, for example. I'm very open to stuff like that. They can reach out to me via LinkedIn and then they have to search on Nina Hoff and that's H-O-F-F. Okay, excellent. This is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers or how to make this podcast better. Send an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.